Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement, it's part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. To paraphrase biomechanist Dr. Stuart McGill, many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you the chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout during your commute, workout, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60-plus minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH highlights people, locally-owned businesses, and events in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that understand that movement its part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody that you think we should interview? Then drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com or connect with us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, both at underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. We are here with part two with Dr. Jay Dawes. Two weeks ago, we got to hear Jay talk about how he arrived at where he is now as an academician, a researcher, and a practitioner, all the way from starting out as a baseball player who hurt his arm and realized that, you know, I need to find something to do and I want to stay in this field. We're going to approach it a little bit more today, continue to learn more from Jay, and recognizing that he's probably one of the leaders in the world on tactical training, which, as he said in the first part of the interview, 10 or 15 years ago, that wasn't a field. And now with the NSCA and their tactical programming and so much of an increase in the importance of fitness, both for the general public and for people involved in law enforcement in the military, it's something that we can all learn more about. So, Jay, thanks for taking time for part two of the interview and sharing your knowledge with us. No, thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. So you mentioned in the first part of the interview that, you know, when you first started as the director of education, the NSCA, which was two jobs ago, you're getting old, you weren't really (laughs) aware of tactical and the NSCA was just introducing it. And now it's one of your major things. So if you're talking to young professionals, I know you also mentioned in the first interview that a number of names of people who have been very, very helpful as you progressed through the field and and became a more knowledgeable. So somebody comes up to you at a conference, I know you're speaking in England in a few weeks, and they ask you a question, you know, what is this tactical stuff I'm reading about and how can I get more involved either as a practitioner or as a researcher? What would you what would you tell them? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, with the tactical area right now, that's, um, you know, probably one of the fastest growing areas of the strength conditioning profession. And I think the the neat thing about it is there's there's certain things we know from a physiological standpoint, as far as things that you know we know can help complement performance in those those spaces and help improve fitness and and things of that nature. But I think the thing that's very interesting is 
um, some of the constraints that they have to deal with and, you know, some of the uh, challenges they have as far as, you know, maintenance of performance and fitness over the, over the lifespan uh, or over the career lifespan. So, you know, I think, you know, that's the, the one thing that's really interesting is that, you know, it's just similar enough to things that I, I feel very comfortable with, and it's just enough out of my comfort zone to where I feel like it's still pushing me. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of young professionals who, or any professional really, who's looking to get into that space, um, I, I would say probably the first step is volunteer. Um, you know, I think that's the one thing that, you know, uh, uh, one of the, the challenges we've seen is there's a lot of people who are getting into that area. Um, and, and wanted to work with some of the higher end teams and you know SWAT units and things like that because it's it's sexy and it looks good on them and you know it's something they can put on their resume and kind of have bragging rights about. But you know, really at the end of the day, it's it's not about you. It's about trying to help them do their job so they can come home safe and you know help keep our community safe. And you know, I, and I'll always tell them like you know I kind of have a vested interest here because you know God forbid we're ever you know in a situation where I need you, but. You know, if I need you, I want to make sure that you can do your job, you know. And, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where I think one of the biggest hurdles, or not even a really a hurdle, but, you know, one of the biggest prerequisites for that is making sure that your intentions are in the right place and that you generally want to help them for their sake and not necessarily for your own. Um, and, and I think that's where the volunteerism really comes into play because, you know, a lot of times, you know, these, these folks are people who are, you know, used to people approaching them about different things and, you know, they're, they're paid to be skeptics, really. And, you know, they, they sniff out people who don't have good intentions pretty darn quick. So I would say first, the first thing is be a genuine person if you're going to do it and genuinely want to help them. And if you do that and you generally try to do the right things, then, again, a lot of times things work out and, you know, different opportunities open up to, to continue doing that. Um, I think, you know, the other aspect, and we've talked about this before in the past, Ben, is, you know, it, in those scenarios, it is stay in your lane and know what you're the expert in and what you're not the expert in. And, you know, every, you know, you know, police officer, firefighter, you know, military soldier I've talked to, I flat out tell them, like, hey, I don't do your job. Um, I'm not going to pretend to understand fully what you have to go through because I haven't 100% been there. And I have actually gone through scenario trainings and, you know, done different types of trainings with them so I could get a better understanding of it. But again, I, I knew I was coming home at the end of the day, you know. So it was one of those things where, you know, I, I wanted to get a better understanding of it, but I'm fully upfront with, hey, I don't do your job, so you have to educate me as much as you can so I can give you the, the tools you need to, you know, hopefully help, you know, you reach what your goals are. And really, if you look at it, what you're doing is it's a specialized form of personal training or group training within the parameters of what they need to do for their job. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, and, and I will say this, like probably, you know, in the cadet setting, um, it is more similar to what you do as a strength coach, you know, like, so, you know, right now at the university, when I've got my soccer team or volleyball team that comes in, you know, it's very structured, um, you know, everybody's on um, a very similar program, again, with slight modifications based on things that we need to address for them. Um, and it's a very controlled environment. I mean, it's very prescribed. I mean, if you, if you say, hey, at 3 p.m., you know, on, you know, the third week, what are they going to be doing? I'm going to have a pretty good idea what that looks like. Um, now, granted, I will say this toward the end of academies and things like that, it gets a lot more variable just because, 
you know, at the end of the day, um, if something has to get cut um, in lieu of more training for their job-specific skills, it's usually the fitness aspects of it. Um, but, you know, in that regard, it, it's a lot more like um, the strength coach setting. If you look at, you know, the things that I do a lot of times with, you know, our different, um, you know, that I've done in the past with, like, SWAT officers and with, like, um, you know, specific officers and, and things of that nature, it is a little bit more like uh, the personal training aspect, even though, or, or, you know, even performance coach, if you, you know, people prefer to call it that, where we have to address what their individual needs and concerns are and, you know, really drill down and give them a program that's going to work for them because, you know, un- unfortunately, in those areas, you know, shift work is a killer as far as recovery and trying to squeeze time in to, to get a workout in. And, you know, a lot of the times, you know, at the end of a, you know, 10, 12, you know, 12-hour shift, the last thing that they want to do is go in and get a workout in, especially, you know, when they're, you know, unfortunately kind of amped up on adrenaline to some extent most of the time. And, and even, you know, even if not necessarily being completely amped up, but like just the stress, um, I was talking to a good friend of mine now who's an officer, and he said, you know, Jay, the thing that most people don't understand is, like, when you have a uniform on, you're not just a normal person anymore. Like, when if you drop a water bottle in the parking lot, you just pick it up. But when you have a uniform on, you pick it up, you're kind of in a vulnerable spot, and you've got to be aware that, you know, something could happen. And, you know, it, it's it's very interesting when you start looking at that dynamic as far as, you know, the, the stress that they're under in, in a lot of cases. And... uh yeah, and trying to develop programs that are going to help improve their performance, allow them the recovery they need, and be able to be proficient on the job as well. Plus, in addition to that, like these are normal people, so <laughs> you know it's not all about performance on the job. Like they got recreational things they want to be engaged in, and things that just help them enjoy life in general. So it's kind of a unique space to where you know there are certain occupational things that we want them to be proficient at, and we have to train for that. But also, you know, we got to make sure that they have the things that just make them more you know, fulfilled and well-rounded human beings as well. To kind of change directions a little bit, but keep in the same field, uh, a lot of law enforcement and other types of organizations that are fortunate enough to have strength and conditioning or performance specialists to work with them, but for the tactical person who doesn't have that access, maybe they're, you know, a real small department or their department just hasn't recognized the importance of this, where can they start looking for information? Because you and I have talked about this before. There's a lot of information on the internet, and not all oh, yeah. of it is good. Yeah, I mean, in fact, you know, I, we talk about being a skeptic. Normally, if I see something on the internet, unfortunately, my first gut reaction is to be skeptical, <laughs> uh, which is, is probably not necessarily always positive. But I think it, it helps keep the guardrails up on certain things as well. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, some some different programs that are out there that are doing a really good job. You know, the NSCA has their tactical strength conditioning program. And, um, you know, they have a, a, a tactical strength conditioning report that goes out uh, periodically that allows individuals to uh, – that are in, in the tactical um, area to get information that they need that's, you know, it, it's written at, at a level to where a strength conditioning professional could pick it up and go, wow, that's good information, but also that you don't have to necessarily have an um, incredibly extensive exercise science background in order to understand it. Um, so and, you know, for a lot of people, that's a really, really good jumping off point um, in order to start getting them the information that, you know, they desire in order to, um, you know, help address some of their specific needs in, in those groups. You also do a little bit of work, or actually quite a bit of work, is with college athletes. What's the difference or similarities with how you approach them and work with college athletes versus uh, tactical athletes? 
Oh man, you know, I think some of the the, the different challenges, you know, with um, probably probably the biggest one is, you know, with a college athlete. Um, it's pretty prescribed. Like we kind of know what's going to be happening for the most part throughout the entire year. Um, you know, like with, with our you know soccer teams, like I can tell you, ten weeks before you know August fifteenth is pretty much preseason. Like I know that that's what we're going to be gearing up for. That's what we're training for. That's what we're doing, and we're trying to get them ready to to be on the field. Um, you know, as soon as you know they get back from Christmas break, well, we're in the off season, and that's about building an engine and trying to get them you know, the capacities they need in order to be more successful when we transfer that to, you know, actual, um, you know, athletic performance. With the the tactical athlete, game time can be at a moment's notice. So we don't ever really know when that's going to happen. Um, you know, there's been times where I've worked with officers and, you know, we're literally in the middle of a training session and all of a sudden they get a call out and go, I, I, we got to roll, we got to go. So, you know, I think the, the challenge is, is, you know, you – you know, a, a lot of um, the people in that area, they like to get good, hard workouts in, and they enjoy that. And, you know, they're not unlike a lot of strength conditioning professionals where, you know, every once in a while they like to get that grinder workout where they're just completely exhausted at the end. However, the challenge is, is you know, again, if we don't know if they're going to be in a life or death situation, you know, in, in the next hour or two hours potentially, depending on, you know, if they're on a special team or, or what it may be. So, you know, those are all things that we kind of have to consider is that, you know, how can we, you know, help them, you know, get the things out of the workout that they want, not only from a physical standpoint, but also from the psychological standpoint, but leave them feeling like, you know, if they had to go do something, they've got more in the tank in order to make sure that they can do their job efficiently. And, uh, you know, it was not too long ago, a young man was asking me about, you know, working with SWAT teams and he was talking about doing a lot of eccentric training and eccentric loading. And, um, you know, certainly a, a decent amount of that is, appropriate but again the, the problem is is you know as most of us know with eccentric loading you're going to be more prone to doms and to you know uh, acute muscle soreness so you know the problem is is you know if you go too far over the edge and all of a sudden you know they get called into a situation i mean you don't want a guy stepping out of the back of a truck and all of a sudden you know his legs go out from underneath him because he's got you know 60 pound kit on and, and gear and all that and you know, he, he, he's just too fatigued, and, you know, all of a sudden we create an injury. So it, it's a really fine line in, in a lot of cases where, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, we're improving fitness and we're you're helping with that. But, again, you know, in a situation where game time could be at any moment, we got to be really cognizant about how we um, prescribe our training variables and be very thoughtful about that as well. What is some advice you give to tactical athletes versus college athletes? If you're working with a college soccer team, for example, you may work with the coach and develop a warm-up routine that they follow prior to practice or prior to games, possibly involving some dynamic movements. But as you mentioned a few minutes ago, with a tactical athlete, they could be sitting in a car all day long and all of a sudden have to be going at 100% VO2 max with a heavy kit on. How do you work with them or what advice do you give to them so that they can be prepared to go from zero to 100% without having an injury or reducing yeah, the chance of having an injury? Yeah, and, and you know, and I, I wish I had the perfect answer for you, and I really don't, because I mean that is something that we definitely struggle with. You know, one of the things that we've kind of been looking into, and you know, anecdotally, people have shared that you know they feel like it has helped, is you know just prior to um, you know situation occurring, or you know periodically while they're in you know truck in that seated position, you know just contracting the muscles. Um, you know, just you know real um, you know brief isometric contractions. You know. Um, relaxation, contraction cycles, and things of that nature, just to kind of keep the blood pumping and flowing. 
um, when you're in there. And then, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times they're really packed in, so movement's not a fantastic, um, or well, it, it's not conducive for it, and in most cases. But you know, just trying to move whatever you can with the confined space that you're in, and you know, and a lot of times it's nothing more than just that, you know, contract, relax cycle, just trying to get a little blood flow going, and you know, making sure that they're, um, you know, staying prepared. So it, it, it's, you know, unfortunately, I don't have the perfect answer for you, um, but you know, that's that's something we've kind of talked about in the past. Um, and then you know, again, with officers that are. Um, you know, you know, especially like um, state patrol and things like that, or you know, patrol officers. You know, just periodically throughout the day, finding time. You know, when you're in your car to you know move a little bit, do a little bit of stretching and and things of that nature. Um, you know, when it's you know a, a safe environment and 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 whatnot, um, just to you know keep keep that movement. I think another one is also with you know sitting in a car for long extended periods of time during the day. You know, it's just, you know, periodically, you know, kind of retracting the scapula and squeezing and, and things of that nature to get them out of that kyphotic position because a lot of times they're sitting in, you know, not advantageous positions for, uh, you know, not only, you know, what they have to do from a performance standpoint, but it really sets them up for a lot of uh, imbalances. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, being in a position like that, especially for officers, it's kind of like being a lifeguard. There's a lot of sitting around until it's life and death. And then, you know, it's, it's full on and you gotta be ready for it. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges. I think, you know, probably the biggest thing is just, you know, do what you can and, you know, everybody's gonna have kind of their own individual, um, strategies that, that work better for, um, for them in, given what their situations might be. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is, you know, really talking to them and going, hey, you know, with what you've, you know, with what your constraints are, what's doable for you? And, and, you know, kind of working out those individualized plans with them. And I would think the better overall condition they are, the better able they are to resist going from zero to 100% without having an injury. Well, and that's one of the big things is really trying to build up that capacity or reserve. And, uh, you know, a lot of times with the personal protective gear, that's going to limit range of motion and, you know, things that they do anyway. But, uh, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where, I mean, if you look at, you know, ankle, knee, hip, uh, you know, mobility and stability, you know, if you got just a little bit more mobility at that ankle and that hip, you know, if you jump out of the car and you've got to go, then, you know, hopefully, you know, your your threshold is wider before you experience that injury, you know. So, you know, maybe you can get a few degrees um, freedom or range of motion greater if you've been doing the things that you're supposed to do, and that prevents that injury from happening. Switching gears a little bit from the tactical athlete to the college athlete, but Correct in my notes and from talking to you, uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs is a Division II NCAA school. Is that correct? Correct, oh. yes. So that's kind of the tweener school. You know, the Division Three. everybody's theoretically doing it for the love of athletics. Nobody's realistically saying, or very few people are realistically saying, this is my pathway to making lots of money. Opposite end of the spectrum, Division One and some of the sports, everybody thinks they're going to make it or they're not. Division Two is kind of in the middle. How do you work with or how do you adapt your programming whereas you're going to have a real big dichotomy of talent from the best athletes to the worst athletes, and then they all have to do the same sort of program? Yeah, you know, we, we really do try to emphasize movement first in a lot of cases here. Uh, well, in, in almost every case, to be quite honest, I think the biggest thing that we see is a lot of times um, we'll get athletes that are pretty proficient from a technical tactical standpoint, 
which is why, you know, the coaches saw some promise in them and, um, you know, to get them in to, you know, potentially help out the teams. But a lot of times their overall athleticism is not necessarily the best. Um, you know, a lot of times we get players who might be, um, you know, a, a little bit more unilateral to where, you know, they've only played maybe a sport. And, you know, they've gotten to be fairly decent players, but, you know, athleticism where we might be lacking some skills. So, you know, one one of the major things that we really try to do is develop them as athletes and and really try and emphasize movement um, and get them to be more proficient movers because, you know, I, I think as most uh, strength conditioning coaches have kind of gone to now, that, you know, if I give a head strength or head um, sports coach a better athlete, they're going to be able to make them better players. You know, so from from our perspective, a lot of what we'll do is like really trying to emphasize movement, trying to have better economy of movement, more efficiency, and, and also really trying to prevent injury. I think also what's something that needs to be brought up, especially since the NFCA just elected our first female president, is what differences have you found or approaches in taking with working with male athletes versus female athletes? Um, as far as different approaches go, um, I'm not sure that the approach is 100% different um, in, in reality. I will say this. I do feel like our women tend to be a lot more um, inquisitive about why they're doing what they're doing. And, and not from a questioning standpoint of, I don't think this is right, but really wanting to understand what's going on. Uh, a lot of our guys are just like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, with, with our female athletes, they really do have a, a genuine enthusiasm for understanding why they're doing the drills that we do. And I think, you know, that that's probably the one thing that, you know, we really emphasize here um, is really teaching the athletes why each exercise that they're doing is going to help transfer to them being better players. And I think, you know, once they get an understanding of that, the buy-in is much better. Um, plus, it transfers into everything else that we do. You know, so if we're doing a, you know, single leg box squat, you know, we'll talk about the movement mechanics to do that action. And now, how does that transfer to what you're doing from a agility perspective on the field? And they start drawing those connections and drawing those lines um, in a lot of cases themselves after they've got the, the prerequisite education to do that. And, you know, I think one of the other things that, you know, I, I've always kind of taken that perspective is, like, at, realistically, most of these athletes, or at least a lot of them, are going to end up coaching in some capacity someday, whether it be, you know, a, a Little League coach or, you know, a collegiate or even professional. But they need to understand why we have them doing what they're doing, because the last thing I want them to do is have a player of theirs in the future do what I have them do and not understand the reason behind it. So I think that probably tends to be the biggest difference is, you know, I think our female athletes do tend to be a little bit more inquisitive about things. Um, you know, from a training standpoint, you know, obviously with female athletes, you know, ACL um, issues and, and things of that nature are something that we do really take priority um, on and, and really try to make sure that we're addressing those issues. Um, you know, fortunately, in the four years that I've been doing this with our university, we've had one non-contact ACL. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, in that situation, the young lady, she came in with a uh, prior back injury and, you know, really, she, she just didn't get the same volume in that all the other players did because we had to kind of accommodate for it and uh, really thought we were going to get her through clean four years. But, you know, she made it three and, you know, we're, we're happy about that. But, you know, I think that's the other thing, too, as a coach. Like, And I just told her, I was like, you know, I've, I've beat myself up about this over and over and I really think we did everything we could do. And, uh, you know, she said, you know, we did everything we could. It was just it was time. 
So, you know, I, I think that's the one thing that, you know, we really want to make sure that we do is, you know, from an injury perspective, anything that we can um, have a hand at preventing, we want to make sure that that's our number one priority. And, and realistically, that sets the foundation for performance because we're talking about, you know, effective deceleration skills, stability, um, eccentric loading. If all those things are in place, then that sets a fantastic foundation for performance. And I know there's research out there. Not everybody is a, is a researcher or likes to read the research. Do you find uh, many of your female athletes come in already having injured one or more ACLs? Um, and we do see some that have had, I would say it's probably 50-50, honestly. Um, you know, fortunately, a lot of times they're coming in and, and, you know, they're young enough, they rebound relatively quickly. Um, so some of their injuries have not been as severe up to this point. Um, but that, that's our big goal to try and head that off before, before it becomes a, a real, you know, massive issue. Or, you know, unfortunately maybe a, not only just a career ending issue, but a life issue to where, you know, that, I think that's the one thing, uh, again, with my own injury, you know, it, it stopped me from playing my sport, but it hasn't stopped me from being able to do things in life. And, you know, I think that's the big thing is, you know, a, a lot of times kids get very, um, you know, focused on, you know, hey, this is what I need to do to be a better athlete now. And, you know, they don't necessarily have the foresight to go, hey, in 20 years from now, what does that mean? You know, when I have kids or, you know, when I'm trying to, you know, just be an active human being, like, how does that injury impact, you know, everything? So, you know, we, we definitely want to set the stage for them to be proficient athletes, but also it's really kind of a long-term athlete development process to where, yeah, we want you to be good now, but I also want you to have a good quality of life later on as well. And that's really an interesting comment. We're filming, or we're not filming, we're actually recording this at the end of July, and just yesterday, you know, Baltimore Ravens uh, offensive lineman retired. He's pursuing a PhD in math at MIT, and he decided that he didn't want to undergo the risk of potentially future head injuries, which would impair his math ability. So quality yeah. of life, yeah. recognizing that athletics is a wonderful thing, but unless you're one of the very, very select less than 1%, it's probably not going, going to be your life. Yeah, and I think that's a very fair point, and it's hard too because you know it's um, especially when you have a, a passion and enthusiasm for something, and you know you want to pursue it. I, I think the the hard thing is to recognize that you know for every professional athlete, at some point in time, it's going to be over, um, or, and for all athletes, that is. So I think you know really you know understanding that and going okay what does you know what does this mean for the rest of my life and how do I start making those plans as well and you know I'll be the last person to tell you to not pursue it um, because I had to and, and for me like if I hadn't done it I would have regretted it forever um, it, it's kind of interesting my wife she recently took up running half marathons and uh, she loved it and she goes well you know I just feel like this is you know a lot healthier for me than doing a full marathon you know this is. Um, you know, a lot better for me, so I don't want to run the full one because I think I'd be at more risk of getting hurt. I'm like, well, you know, running half marathons isn't really healthy. I mean, you're, you're, you could get hurt doing that. And she's like, well, what do you mean? Do you not think it's good for me? I'm like, well, no, you'll get a lot of fitness benefits from it, and you know, you'll you'll improve. But I mean, you're just you know, risk of you know injury just based on the amount of exposure you get. I mean, you're you're gonna get hurt. We just have to manage it so you can keep doing it. She's like, would well, you not think I should do it? I'm like, well, do you want to do it? Well, yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, you should do it then. But that's, I think that's the thing that you have to accept with sport is it is 100% injury. You are going to get hurt. It's just hopefully it's not to the point where it has a, you know, impact on the rest of your life. And, you know, how well do you manage it to make sure that you can keep doing the things that you want to do? 
And, uh, you know, again, so I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm very pro sport. I mean, I would say definitely pursue it, but also recognize that, you know, there's, there is going to be a time after this and the decisions you make now could, could impact that. And it, it's really funny. We've actually had a few players that, and, and, and I was probably even one of these people hung on a little bit too long to it to where it was almost like they needed permission to stop. <laughs> so it's, it was one of those things that, you know, they've just done it for so long and, you know, it just comes to a point in time. It's like, you know, you don't have that love for this anymore. And, you know, you're probably, you know, this is, this is where you're going to be done. So, you know, that's okay. But it's that acceptance level of, you know, I'm coming to that closure and what needs to be next and how, how can I transition into, you know, the rest of my life and, again, still be a healthy human being. And I think that's a great transition to the final area I want to talk to you about in this second part of the interview. Many of the people that we're interviewing with Moving to Live have children. Uh, we're going to have an interview with Rick Howard and an interview with Brian Garrity, both who specialize in, in Rick's case, working with children or working with youth, and in Brian's case, the science of coaching. And you're somebody who really is an academician and in the trenches as far as working with people who are either college athletes or tactical athletes. But I think we need to take it a step back. You and I both know that a lot of times kids specialize too young or they learn incorrect things. What's advice that you could give to parents or youth coaches who maybe don't have the background that you have as far as starting out with some sort of resistance training for their kids? Say maybe they're they got uh, sucked into coaching their son's little league team. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've actually been that person literally every time my son has played a sport. Um, I usually say, hey, I'll be the assistant coach and usually end up taking a bigger role by the time the season's over. But, you know, I, I think the thing that I'm always really big on, you know, my age span with my kids, you know, one of my daughters is, uh, or my oldest is almost 14. Uh, my middle daughter is just turned 12. My son turned nine uh, a couple weeks back. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is just make them better at moving and allow them to explore movement, um, which it, it, that sounds kind of funny. But, you know, again, with kind of the um, environment that we, we've set up just kind of based on, you know, technology and society and things like that. Now, kids just don't get a chance to move as much as they used to um, unless we give them opportunities to do that. Um, you know, I think that was the one thing that I was pretty fortunate with is, you know, I was a, you know, farm kid who, um, you know, in the summers we, you know, run and climb and, you know, jump and, and do all kinds of things out on the farm all day long. And I think with that, you know, I, there, there's some movement skills and abilities that you get that, um, otherwise you, you just, you have a harder time developing later in life or maybe don't optimize them later in life. Um, but I think, you know, the greatest gift that you can give your kids is to give them the gift of, um, you know, being able to, you know, move well and, and to take the opportunities to improve their own fitness. And I think, you know, for us personally with our kids, um, early on, all of them were in gymnastics, all of them took swimming. So, you know, kind of really following that LTAD model um, that that's out there as far as, um, you know, trying to learn good movement awareness and good movement skills. And, you know, frankly, with, with my children, like, you know, my, my son is probably going to gravitate to sports. My other two daughters, I'm not sure if they will or not. I mean, they like it, but I don't think it's going to be, um, you know, quite their, their passion like my son. But, you know, if they never play a sport um, moving on through high school, that's okay. I think my biggest thing is, like, are you um, engaged in, in activities that are going to help you stay healthy, that will keep you fit, 
and you know help you lead a, an overall good quality of life. And I think you know doing those things early on and allowing them to you know participate in different activities and you know again just free play is a massive thing. Like just get out and move and explore movement and do things gives them a good foundation for that. And you know my take on it is like you know as they get older, even if they don't play competitive sports, you know people who move better are more apt to move often and to engage in different activities that just help again make them better well-rounded individuals. And I think you know as a parent, that's what I'm trying to do is just give them the the opportunity to be um, you know confident in those things so they can participate in what they choose to later on. And Jay referred to a few minutes ago LTAD, that's long-term athletic development. We'll have a link in the show notes to a paper by the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Just in simple terms, Jay, would you agree? Basically, it says develop your children or athletes slowly and don't allow them to specialize at too young an age. That's a vast oversimplification, but do you think that's a good starting point? I think that's a great starting point. You know, and that's um, – I think for me personally, that was – the the biggest thing as an athlete that challenged me from reaching what my full potential could have been is I did end up specializing pretty early. Um, you know, I, I only ended up playing a couple sports, um, you know, after the age of 14. And and I think that was one of the things where, you know, at, at, you know, late 80s and whatnot, intuitively, you know, everybody was pushing people toward early specialization because, I mean, it makes sense if you want to be really good at something, you put all your time and energy and effort into it. And, you know, I think, you know, as as the years have progressed, we've realized that, you know, you don't get that good multilateral development that you get from other sports um, when you when you do that. And uh, and, and for me, you know, it, it's funny, you know, we talk about this from a research perspective and from, um, you know, the, the literature and all that. But, you know, for me, the biggest evidence is just watching my son, um, you know, the kid, he's he's 10 times the athlete I ever was at nine years old. And a lot of that is because he's, you know, he's done the gymnastics, he's been in swimming, he's played flag football and soccer and basketball and lacrosse. And the funny thing about it is, is it's funny to see how each one of those different sports, when he moves to the next one, how the previous one has complemented the one he's in now. You know, so I think that's the thing is like, it's, it's one thing to talk about it. It's been very, um, you know, interesting for me and, you know, fun as a dad to watch that with my kids and see that process actually occur. And, you know, all these things that we talk about, um, you know, at, at conferences and all that, actually see it in the real world and how that applies and works is, um, you know, been, been you know, a thrill. Great information. We've been talking with Dr. Jay Dawes. He's giving us a little background about things to think about when working with tactical athletes, when working with college athletes, and I think most importantly, when either working with children or looking at the coaches who your children have the opportunity to deal with. Jay, this was the second interview that we've done, and I know it took us a little bit while to get it scheduled, but I want to thank you for taking time to talk with Moving to Live about this. No, and again, I appreciate you having me on, Ben. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play, and be notified about a new episode release. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, both at underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about moving to live. 
or a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. Mm -hmm.